Rich Roll, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Mario, it's great to be here. Can't wait to talk to you. Um, we're going to bounce all over the place throughout the course of this conversation, but I want to start with a blog post that you wrote in 2014. Um, mm-hmm. And it was called Why You Should Stop Life Hacking and Invest in the Journey, which I think is how I first came into contact with your work. Um, so let's talk about your journey. Um, in that post you wrote today, I enjoy tremendous satisfaction knowing that on a daily basis, I strive to invest absolutely everything I have in what makes me, what makes my heart beat hardest. Looking back, it seems to all make perfect sense how events unfolded to take me from where I was to where I am today. So let's start with a loaded question. Who is Rich Roll <laughs> and how did you get to where you are today? <laughs> well, you're coming out of the gate strong. Um, who is Rich Roll? Well, that's the that's the ultimate question, right? Like, who who are we? You know, I, I firmly believe we're we're here on on planet Earth to answer that question for for ourselves. And you know, I don't know that I I have a pithy answer to that, but you know, everything that I kind of do is is sort of about trying to answer that question for myself. I mean, I, you know, on a very surface level. You know, I have the bio. It's like I'm an ultra endurance athlete. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. I'm a dad. You know, I'm a husband. I've got four kids. Um, I travel a lot for for public speaking. And, you know, in general, I'm I'm a wellness advocate, I guess I would say. But, you know, who is Rich Roll? Well, you know, that's it's a much that's a profound question, I think. And, you know, if I had to try to encapsulate that in some way, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, how do I, how do I even begin to unpack that and, and answer it? Um, you know, I think now, you know, what sort of motivates me and, and gets me interested in, in life and, and other people is trying to take these experiences that I've had and, and try to, uh, storytell around them and share my own experience in the hopes that they can be helpful to other people. So on some level, I suppose I'm a teacher. Um, but not from the perspective of telling people what they should or shouldn't do, but trying to be sort of an emotional cipher, uh, for other people who are in the process of grappling with this very same question and trying to answer it for themselves. So you're 51 years old at this point and your life right now is very different than it was when you were 31 years old. Um, mm-hmm. what would what would 31 year old rich roll think of the current version of who you are? <laughs> I think 31 year old rich roll would be baffled, uh, at, at what I'm doing right now because it's so, uh, far afield from anything that I ever imagined, uh, that I would be doing with my life. I mean, when I was 31, uh, that was when I was in rehab. You know, I was, I have a, I had a sort of sordid career, uh, into the dark underbelly of alcoholism. And at 31, I got sober. I ended up in a, in a treatment center in Oregon for a hundred days. And, you know, so I think if I had to characterize myself at 31, I was very confused. You know, I, I was really unsure about who I was and, and, and what I wanted to do with myself. And, I was, I was a pretty broken individual at that, at that point in, in my life. And, you know, up to that point, I thought I'd been making good decisions, but, you know, essentially my best thinking had me (laughs) 
you know, in this mental institution, for lack of a better phrase. So uh, I don't think that I had a ver- very much clarity on, on myself or, you know, what made me function and what led me to that dark place. And the last 20 years have been about um, trying to, like I said earlier, you know, trying to answer that question for myself and also um, trying to, you know, learn from tools that were first introduced to me during that experience and, and build on them and compound them to progressively um, continue to to grow, not just uh, emotionally, but, you know, mentally, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. What were some of those tools that were introduced to you at that time in your life, and how do you use them today? I, I think fundamentally, they you know, setting aside the very sort of tactical aspects of what's required to achieve sobriety and maintain sobriety underneath that is a foundation that's really spiritual in nature. Like, uh, I've told this story before, but it was presented to me, you know, very early on in that experience that, you know, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And I've never heard anything like that in my life prior to that. I wasn't you know, I wasn't a religious person. I wasn't a spiritual person. I sort of was living very much in the tactile 3D world, trying to achieve the American dream and, uh, you know, climb the corporate ladder and all that kind of stuff and was very disconnected from myself emotionally, uh, which I think is, you know, a big part of what, you know, led me down that rabbit hole. But, you know, the tools that were introduced to me at that point were really things like meditation and prayer and trying to come to this understanding that um, that we're not just our bodies and we're not just our minds. And that was very foreign for me as somebody who, you know, kind of considered himself somewhat of, you know, somebody who lived in their mind, you know, somebody who was was pursuing a career based on, on intellect. And it was a, a long road of trying to understand that that has to be subservient to the greater task of, of, you know, trying to find your way as a, as this spiritual being having a human experience. And, it, you know, it was very nonlinear for me. And, um, and, you know, I'm certainly no master in that regard, but I think, you know, that's been sort of a core guiding North star for me. And I think secondarily, second to that is this notion that you learn in recovery, which is, which is service. Like your primary, your primary purpose, uh, as a sober alcoholic is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. What this means is that your job really is to avail yourself in service to other people. And when you can really live in that space, um, what I've learned and what I've experienced is that, is that, uh, um, things tend to generally <laughs> work out in the long run, perhaps not in the short run, but in the long run. And so I've taken that approach in the work that I do. Um, like I said earlier, like all of this is an act of service and yeah, it's my profession and I need to make a living and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately what really drives me and, 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 uh, what's behind all of this is, is trying to be of service both, you know, in the, in the world of recovery and, and outside the world of recovery with respect to, you know, the world at large. So let's, let's rewind a little bit um, to some of the stuff that you had just talked about. So you're 31 years old. Um, you're in rehab trying to overcome an alcohol addiction or at least work on it um, and work toward 
sobriety and you were able to successfully do that. Um, but it's been kind of a long and winding road since then. Um, and I think now you're known as a, a, amongst other things, a plant powered ultra endurance athlete, but that didn't come until much later. So let's talk about sort of almost 10 years later, I believe. So let's talk about that gap, um, between when you were in rehab in Oregon and, you know, to the time you were about, I think it was about 40 years old when you started taking up ultra endurance sports, like what was going on in your life during that, that 10 year period? And what were you, you know, even though you were, you know, you were sober at that point, what were you still struggling with during that time period? Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a great question. So, you know, in the wake of that treatment center experience, uh, I sort of gingerly re-entered the world and my, you know, my goals were really to repair all the damage I'd done as a result of my drinking and using. Um, you know, I had been somebody who as a young person had a tremendous amount of promise and potential. Like I, I was a really good swimmer in high school. I was a good student. I got into, you know, all the best colleges. I ended up going to Stanford and competing on, you know, two NC2A division one championship swimming teams. Although I would say that I was a bench warmer. I was hardly a, a standout on that squad, but you know, I had a career as an athlete and, uh, you know, I, I was, I was successful in school and all of that. So, you know, the, the future looked very bright for me and alcoholism really stripped me of all of that and, and, and broke me. And so coming out of the treatment center, you know, I had a family that wasn't interested in talking to me. I was sort of somebody who couldn't be trusted to show up on time or, you know, follow through on anything. And I had to fix all of that. And so, um, a, it was, you know, my priority was creating the strongest foundation of sobriety that I possibly could. And that was, you know, first and foremost. And then B, it was about trying to, uh, you know, get back on this track that I felt like I had strayed from. So a lot of my, you know, although I didn't drink or use drugs, like I still was managing a lot of obsessive, compulsive, addictive tendencies. And those were manifest in workaholism. Like I was a, you know, senior associate at a prestigious Los Angeles law firm. And, uh, you know, my solution was I'm going to make partner and I'm going to show everybody that I could, you know, that I could turn this whole ship around. And, and so I threw myself into my work, you know, 80 hour work weeks, 60 hour work weeks, you know, the whole deal that kind of gets baked into what it means to be a corporate lawyer. And so by the time I was 39, you know, I, I had, I succeeded in that. Like I, you know, really had a, had a bright future as a lawyer and had a really nice fancy car in the driveway. And I met my wife and was building a family and, you know, things looked pretty good on the outside looking in. It looked like I, I'd figured things out and, um, and achieved those goals that I had set for myself, 10 years sober, the whole deal. Um, but, I, but, you know, really what was happening, Mario, was that, I was propelled essentially by this sort of blind self-will of, of achievement that was disconnected from any honest inquiry into what was truly important to me or what made me tick. So in other words, I was kind of jamming a, a, you know, a round peg into a square hole because I never enjoyed being a lawyer. I never really, you know, stopped to think, is this what I want to do? I just felt like this was something I was supposed to do. And, and as I neared 40, 
you know, I, it really started to catch up to me. I was, I was very unhappy professionally and I was able to be successful, um, but not because I was doing it for the right reasons. And so this sort of, you know, emotional, mental, existential crisis was kind of percolating in my awareness. At the same time, I, I hadn't taken care of myself. I was so intent on climbing this corporate ladder that I just, I, I didn't pay attention to my diet. I didn't work out and I put on 50 pounds and you know, I wasn't like morbidly obese or anything like that. I just was like a chubby, you know, kind of thick, you know, guy who's working too much. And, 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 and this kind of collided with this existential crisis that I had, um, that I was harboring shortly before I turned 40, when I had, you know, this incident, just walking up a simple flight of stairs to my bedroom and, you know, I, I had to take a break halfway up the staircase. Like I was winded and out of breath and I had tightness in my chest and, and it was just, it was a scary moment. Um, I really believe that I was on the precipice of suffering from some kind of heart condition, uh, because heart disease runs in my family and my grandfather who'd been a champion swimmer in his youth had died very early, uh, of heart disease as well. And so it had always been stressed upon me growing up, like you got to be careful about this kind of thing, but I never really paid, paid much heed to that. And it all kind of came crashing down on me in that, in that moment. And I realized like, I, I just, I'm living an unsustainable life. Like I'm not happy doing what I'm doing and it's ruining my health. And like, what am I doing? You know, I, I, it was really, uh, it was really kind of a, a bottom, you know, that was very similar to my bottom in alcoholism when I decided to go to rehab. And I, I felt like I was being revisited by another uh, opportunity to course correct how I was living because that experience of getting sober had changed my life so dramatically. Um, and, and so I believed in the power of change. You know, I, I knew that I was capable of changing myself. Um, but, you know, willingness is a big part of that. And I hadn't been willing to really even look at that. But in that moment, on that staircase, like I, I felt that willingness again. And, and I knew that I needed to grab onto it, that that would, you know, hold this sort of, you know, hold the magical powers to, you know, propel me into the next chapter of my life. And, you know, what that looked like, I had no idea. I just knew that, you know, I had this kind of groundswell of, of, of motivation and inspiration and willingness to do something about it. And, and so that was really the, you know, the catalyst for everything that has transpired since. And I mean, since, I mean, that was the, the advent of your, you know, I guess your ultra lifestyle, which we're going to get into here in a little bit, but what were, what were the next steps, um, after that moment on the staircase, what did you do first to start turning your life around? Was it introducing exercise back into your life again, changing your diet? Did you do one thing at a time and one thing led to another, or did you try to massively overhaul everything at once um it was really kind of a step-by-step -step thing of of you know a, sort of a blind person stumbling around in the dark uh not really <laughs> knowing what to do precisely but the way it unfolded was the first thing that i did was was a seven day uh juice fast um vegetable based and some fruit based um you know, juicing and, and smoothie, smoothie drinking for like seven days, which for me, you know, all I've been eating was Jack in the box and McDonald's and Chinese takeout and pizza hut, you know, for the last 20 years. So 
that was a radical experiment. Um, and I embarked on that not because I felt like this is going to detox my body or anything like that. I just, I knew I needed to do something kind of dramatic, um, to shake me out of my routine and my habits, uh, and, and kind of reboot my operating system, you know, mentally as much as, as much as anything else. Um, similar to, you know, going to rehab and you're in detox for a couple of days until, you know, you can enter, you know, the, the recovery community that a treatment center has. And, and this was a different version of that for me. I just knew it needed to be kind of severe to shock me a little bit. And, and that experience delivered, you know, it was for a couple of days, it was horrible and I couldn't move. And I was lethargic laying on the couch, sweating and thinking, how am I going to get through, you know, another day of this? But by the end of that experience, I felt a resurgence in my energy levels and, and my vitality in a pretty profound way. And it was, it was strange and disorienting because, uh, you know, it never occurred to me that doing something, something like that could have such a profound effect on, on how I felt. And, you know, like I said, at the end of that experience, I felt so good. It, then, then the next phase was like, well, how can I find a way to eat? that's sustainable with my lifestyle that would allow me to feel like this all the time. Um, and then, you know, that ushered in a six month period of kind of playing around with different ways of eating and not really having the success that I was looking for. Um, and ultimately kind of settling into what was essentially a junk food vegetarian diet, uh, until there I was like sort of back on the couch, you know, lazier and more lethargic than ever, having not lost any weight and, you know, not a lot of exercise happening during that period of time and thinking I just played this out. And I remember it, it occurred to me, well, you know, I'm 40, maybe you just don't, maybe you're, just, you're not supposed to feel that good anymore. You know, I'm getting older and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's when, you know, the last gasp sort of Hail Mary was, well, the one thing I haven't done is try, you know, this, this, 100% plant-based diet, which I wasn't that excited about. It seemed really severe and, and restrictive and, um, and, and not that fun, but I thought, well, let me try this. And then I can say, I, I literally tried everything. And, and, uh, you know, if it doesn't work, then I can sort of guilt-free return to my old lifestyle habits and, and just, you know, chalk it up to an experiment going awry. But, what happened was within, I don't know, a week, a week and a half of, of, of eating essentially nothing but plants close to their natural state, um, I started to feel better and better each day. And, and, and really, it was the closest thing to that experience on the, the you know, last two days of that juice cleanse. I felt great. You know, my energy levels were skyrocketing. My mental clarity was improved. Um, my sleep was better. My skin was starting to clear up in bizarre ways. And, 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 and I realized like, oh, I'd stumbled into something that seems to be agreeing with me. And, and then it became about like trying to figure out what exactly was going on and, and, and finding a way to do this in a, in a way that would, you know, be as healthy as possible. And with that kind of hand in hand was, a renewed interest in moving my body again, because I had so much energy. I was literally like tapping my foot and, you know, almost like eight, you know, like I had attention deficit disorder. Like I felt like I just had to go do something and I hadn't felt that way in a long time. And so, you know, I pulled an old pair of shoes out of the closet and started jogging once in a while. I went back to the swimming pool in my neighborhood and swam a little bit. My wife bought me a bike for, for my birthday. And, 
you know, I just started engaging with myself physically, you know, like I said, for the first time in a very long time, but there was no agenda to, you know, being a competitive athlete. Once again, it was really just this experience of, of recon, reconnecting with myself in a physical way. And, and, and what happened was I just realized like how much I'd missed that, you know, swimming was so much a part of my life growing up and, and, and I loved it. And I put so much distance between myself and those activities just sort of thinking, well, that's what kids do. And I'm a grown up now. And, you know, I can't really do that anymore. But I made this very conscious decision. Like, I enjoy this. Like, you know, this is this needs to be a part of my life now. And I'm going to make sure that I incorporate it into my daily routine, no matter what. And it's going to I'm going to prioritize it. So that was the beginning of, of reconnecting with fitness. And, you know, what, what really kind of lured me into the ultra endurance world was, you know, within four or five months of, of, you know, kind of adopting these new habits, I went out for a morning run and I just had one of those days where I, I was like in the zone and I just felt amazing. And I ended up running uh, what for me was an extraordinary distance. I ran like 24 miles on a trail. I've never done anything like that before in my life. I had no idea that I was capable of that. Um, and it was a, that was another kind of like profound, you know, milestone for me where I started thinking about my own potential. You know, I never really actualized my potential as a swimmer because of my, you know, habits at that, at that age. And also just the fact that, that uh, you know, in a very short period of time, I could make these simple changes that had such a dramatic impact on how I was feeling and how I was living. It started getting me thinking about, like, what else in my life I had overlooked and, you know, not just physically, but in potential, you know, across the board. Mm -hmm. And it was around that time where, you know, I didn't know anything. I didn't know the world of ultra running existed or ultra endurance sports. Like, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe I'll do an Ironman. That could be a cool bucket list challenge. And I stumbled across this article on Ultraman. And it was a story that was specifically about David Goggins having just done Badwater and then doing Ultraman. And it just blew, it blew my mind. You know, it just blew my mind that human beings could actually do something like that. It seems so insane and also like really beautiful and pure, like this world of, of, you know, ultra endurance seemed to be, um, you know, in this kind of pristine untouched state where it hadn't yet been, um, impacted by media and sponsor dollars. Like it, it seemed much more like it was early days. Yeah, it was early days. And it seemed like the people that were doing it were doing it not just to be competitive athletes, but to really learn something about themselves. And, 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 and it reminded me of this, you know, uh, of, you know, people in rehab trying to find themselves and, and connect with themselves in a more profound way. And, and, and really kind of like a spiritual odyssey, this three day adventure around the big Island of Hawaii and something just clicked inside me. And I, I just decided I was going to find a way, you know, onto the starting line of that race, um, to, you know, explore the outer perimeters of, of, of what I was capable of. And, and so that was really, you know, the beginning of, of that chapter of what I've done. And you were still working as a lawyer at this time. Yeah, I had ultimately quit my big law firm job. Um, I think it was about a year after I got out of rehab and 
that's a whole other story. But, you know, essentially I was still practicing law, but I was doing it. I had periods where I was a solo practitioner and then I had periods where I had partners and then I had one partner. So I, I had a couple different incarnations of being a lawyer, but I was still, yeah, that was my, that was how I was making a living as a lawyer at that time. But being essentially self-employed uh, allowed me the flexibility to craft a schedule that would permit me to, you know, put in the training hours um, because I didn't have to report to a boss between, you know, certain hours right. of the day. What was that first race back for you? Which event was um, it? Oh, the, like the first thing that I did? Yes. Uh, after, oh, so I, I, uh, I, I entered the Long Beach Marathon and that was an interesting experience. Like I just trained by myself doing what I thought I should do. And, you know, I, I had that experience that I'm sure you, <laughs> you've heard of often where everything seems to be fine until you hit mile eight, 18. And, you know, and then I, I hit that point and just walked the rest of the way and realized like, oh, well, maybe I'm not quite the runner that I thought I was. Uh, and then I and then I entered the Wildflower uh, Triathlon, which is essentially a, a very hilly half Ironman distance triathlon. And I DNF'd that race like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, Did you ever so, have any thought of quitting at that point or feeling like you were on the wrong path? No, I just was having fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't care. You know, it wasn't, I, I, it wasn't about like race results for me or how I measured up to anybody else. Like it was really the lifestyle, mm -hmm. you know, so irrespective of DNF or whatever, like I was just, I was having a good time and that was really it. But once kind of Ultraman, the specter of Ultraman entered <laughs> the equation, that's when I hired, you know, I hired Chris Health as my coach and, and started getting, you know, smart and, and strategic about what I was doing. And that was a huge learning curve for me. You know, I thought because I'd swum at a high level that I knew how to train my body and I really had to, you know, throw everything out and start from the beginning and, and learn the basics, you know, ABC, um, to, to understand how to be, you know, how to, how to really, you know, achieve the potential that I was seeking. Yeah. And how did your relationship with racing evolve over the next few years once you started working with a coach and pursuing Ultraman and some of these other, um, like massive endurance events? Well, I trained with Chris for like seven months uh, leading up to Ultraman, and that was, you know, very humbling. And you know, I, I would say, just on a on a global level, like I'm not somebody who shows up at races every weekend. I'm more the guy who likes to go in the hole and like prepare for as long as possible for like one key race, and then show up and lay it all on the line. That's kind of you know been my mo. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, I, I had a lot to learn, so I was very humble about the whole thing. And when I showed up at my first Ultraman in 2008, my only goal really was to just finish the thing. Like I wasn't trying to be competitive or I wasn't motivated by beating anyone or anything like that. Um, but I had a, you know, for, for at that point, you know, in my kind of evolution as an athlete, like I put in a performance that exceeded my expectations. Um, you know, ended up like, I think it was 11th that year. It's a small race. I mean, there's only 35 people in the race. So it's not like 11th out of 2000 or anything like that. Um, but that really, um, encouraged me to, um, try to be, uh, a little more competitive. And so I spent the next year training for an entire year for Ultraman 2009 and showed up at that race with the intention of, of really like trying to, trying to see what I was capable of to really like, you know, um, busted out. 
And, uh, and, you know, that race started out great. I was, I was, I had a 10 minute lead on the, on the field after the first day, but I crashed my bike on the second day, which really took me out of any kind of podium contention and, and really threatened whether I would even be able to finish the race at all. Um, but, you know, I was able to kind of hobble my way, uh, to, to sixth place that year. And, and that was an amazing experience. You know, I think, that stage one of that race is probably still the highlight of my athletic career because I was 43 at the time and, you know, only really two and a half years off, off, you know, off the couch essentially. And, uh, and yet again, like for me, it's still always been about like, you know, have I, have I really, you know, tapped into as much as I'm truly capable of. Um, and I thought like in the wake of that experience, like, maybe I've answered that question for myself. Like, I don't, I didn't feel like I had anything to prove to anybody else or myself, but, um, that's when Jason Lester, who was a training partner of mine and a friend and somebody I'd competed in Ultraman with, who's an incredibly inspiring individual. He, he does these ultra races without the functional use of his right arm. He had this idea to do this thing called Epic five, which was, which was trying to uh, complete five Ironman distance triathlons on five Hawaiian islands in five days. And uh, initially he was going to do it just by himself and I was going to provide support, but he, uh, he asked me to do it with him and <laughs> I just, I couldn't say no to that. And so in 2010, we embarked on that adventure and we were able to complete it. It didn't take us five days. It took us a little bit longer, a little under seven days to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, you know, yet another kind of event horizon in, in, in sort of expanding the, you know, the perimeter of what I ever thought I would ever be capable of, you know, as an athlete. And so I think, you know, with that, you know, my message, you know, and everything that I do is, is, is helping people to understand that, you know, often we're, we're our own worst enemies. And I think we're all capable of so much more than, than we allow ourselves to be. And, you know, when I, when I kind of put this message out in the world, it's not necessarily just for athletes, you know, it's for anybody, not everybody wants to be an ultra endurance athlete. And, you know, my intention with these events is really to use them as metaphors for whatever unlocked potential, you know, we're all sitting on top of, be it athletic or anything else for that matter. When did you leave lawyering, for lack of a better word, altogether um, mm. and start pursuing your current path as a wellness advocate and, you know, all of the things that you had just talked about, the message that you're trying to get across and starting to do that on a on a full time basis? Yeah, I didn't actually fully walk away from being a lawyer until 2012 when when my first book, Finding Ultra, came out. Um you know, with the caveat that I've been slowly sliding out of it, you know, for a while, like sort of de-escalating my involvement in it to the point where it had almost become a part-time job. Um, but officially, like I l allowed my like bar membership to lapse uh, in the spring of 2012 and kind of jumped into the void and thought, okay, I have this book out out now. Um, you know, there's a certain number of people who are, you know, familiar with what I'm doing and I became intent on trying to figure out how to craft some kind of career or profession out of, you know, this, not necessarily just the book, but like this message at large that I was trying to put out in the world. And I very naively made that decision. And I thought that, you know, I would be sort of supported as I stepped into this world. But 
ultimately, you know, we went through a very difficult financial time for a number of years trying to figure out how to, how to, you know, basically professionalize what I was doing in a way that could support my family. So it was, it was not easy. Um, and there weren't a lot of like, sort of um, templates out there or role models where I could say, oh, that guy did it like this. So I'm going to figure out, like, I'm going to reverse engineer it and, you know, figure out how to do my version of that. Like I was really freewheeling it. And, you know, it started with, oh, somebody, you know, will pay me, you know, $500 to go give a talk somewhere here. And I just said yes to everything on the premise that, you know, eventually, as long as I, as I'm continually, you know, doing this, that something will materialize. And like I said, it was a, it was, it was rough for a while. I mean, everything's great now, but, uh, uh, there were many moments where I, I deeply questioned that decision. So your book comes out, you launched a podcast, um, shortly thereafter. Have you been surprised at the impact that your work through the book, through your speaking, through the podcast and the various things that you're involved with has had? on other people, athletes, um, alcoholics, and people who are just struggling with various things in life. Has any of that surprised you? Yeah, it's been a, it's a complete surprise. I mean, to the point of being like outright shocking, you know, like I, I could have never predicted that. I mean, I started the podcast in, in November of 2012, really as a creative outlet. Like I, during, when I was training for all these ultras, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I really enjoyed the medium. And I was always confused why more people weren't listening to them. I'm like, there's all this incredible content for free on iTunes, but nobody seemed to be really dialing into it. And I think it was, you know, it was wonky back then. You would have to download you know, a podcast on iTunes on your laptop or your desktop and then bounce it to an MP3 player. So it wasn't like as seamless and easy to use as it is now. And it certainly wasn't cool. Like there, there just wasn't a lot of activity right. in the podcast world at that time. But I, I was, in, I was enjoying it so much. And I realized like there wasn't, there weren't that many shows in the whole, in the health, um, um, category. And I thought, well, I know some interesting people and, you know, I, I don't know, like maybe, there's something to explore here. And I started it without any expectation whatsoever. I didn't know whether it would be an episode two. I didn't approach it strategically. I didn't have a business plan. It wasn't, it wasn't a way to make money or anything like that. It was really, um, I felt like a way to continue a conversation that was begun in my work. And I, I didn't have much of an agenda, but I, I can tell you that I love doing it from the first episode that I, that I recorded. And I thought this is super fun. And so I just kept going and I, you know, I never missed a week in the almost six years that I've been doing this. I've been incredibly consistent with it, but um, I, it didn't really connect until maybe, I don't know, two or two and a half years ago. I mean, I did it for a very long time without monetizing it um, just because I loved it. And you know, the audience, it, it, it wasn't like there was ever a viral moment or anything that went bananas that, you know, spiked the profile of it. It's just been slow, progressive growth and me trying to get better at the craft of, of you know, conversing with people and finding more and more interesting guests. And, and also like trying to cast a wide net. Like it's, you know, from the very beginning, I was like, this isn't, a podcast about being a triathlete or being a vegan. It's about personal growth across the board. And I'm going to bring on all different kinds of people, you know, some of which you're not going to agree with, or I might not even agree with, but you know, all, all around, like, how can we be 
better in you know not just physically mentally emotionally spiritually the whole the whole shebang and it's been an incredible journey i could have never predicted that you know it would connect with as many people as it has and you know as successful as finding ultra is and has been i mean that book continues to sell it sells more every year than, than the year before which is amazing i flip on the microphone you know once a week or twice a week and i can reach more people uh, you know, during that hour and a half, then, then the number of people that have read that book, you know, all over the world. So it's become a very powerful, um, portal for me. And the fact that, you know, interesting people are listening to it is just, you know, that's icing on the cake, but honestly, you know, the, the goal of it really is just to connect with the, the average person who's, you know, perhaps sitting in a cubicle or feels stuck in their life in some way and, and is looking for some some real, helpful, honest information that could perhaps um, trigger them out of their situation and, and help them rethink their own lives. Let's pull on the podcast thread for another minute or so here. I'm a big fan of it. I've shared it many times, links to many episodes in my newsletter, The Morning Shakeout. Um, and I've always, as a new podcaster myself, I've always appreciated your interview style and the interactions that you have with your guests and the types of questions that you, that you ask. Um, I've always been curious, how do you think your, uh, previous career, previous life as a lawyer or the skills that you learned while studying law have helped you as a podcaster if they have at all? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, thank you, because I know that you shared my show out. And, um, you know, I respect, you know, who you are and what you do tremendously. So that that was, you know, very meaningful to me. So I appreciate that. Um, in terms of, of how, you know, being a lawyer has informed it. Yeah, I mean, as a lawyer, you know, I took a ton of depositions where basically you sit across from somebody at a conference room and you ask them a bazillion questions. So maybe that's that was probably my boot camp <laughs> in like trying to figure out a style. Um, but I think so. I think that's been helpful. Yes. Uh, you know, as a lawyer, you're, you, you learn how to think methodically. And you're always you're advocating for your client. So you're always thinking from your client's point of view. And so when I approach a podcast, I'm always trying to put myself in the position of, you know, the imagined listener and what they, you know, would be interested in hearing about. So I think I'm pretty good at that. But I think more kind of more instructive in my style has been, you know, the thousands and thousands of hours that I've sat in in AA meetings and, you know, people get up and they share their stories and they do it in a very emotionally raw and vulnerable way. And they call it like what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, like a three act structure. Get up and and tell us your, you know, what happened to you. And, you know, after listening to, you know, hundreds, if not you know, thousands and thousands of these stories and, and, and having to get up and do that myself, um, you become uh, you become very empathetic to the human condition, I think. Uh, and I think that is something that I bring to the conversations that maybe uh, is less developed in other people. Like for me, uh, the priority is, is trying to find that emotional connection with whoever I'm talking to. And if I can do that, I trust that whatever information they're, they, you know, they're, they can provide will come through. But 
the information has to come secondary to the bond that I try to um, forge with whoever's, you know, whoever's, whoever's guesting on the show. Super cool. Let's go back to books for a second. You mentioned Finding Ultra, which is essentially your story. And I, I think it's amazing that it continues to sell better and better every year, even though it's six years old at this point. Um, you just came out with, I think, it, would you call it the second edition of Finding Ultra, or updated edition of Finding Ultra? I'm not sure exactly how you're, you're labeling it. Um, but that just came out. Um, it's a, it's an updated version of your, story. What was the reasoning behind re-releasing it and what's different about this new version from the one that came out back in 2012? Yeah, thanks for asking. It, yeah, it's a, a revised and updated edition. I guess it's a second edition, whatever you want to call it. Um, I wanted to update it for a variety of reasons. The first and probably biggest reason is that um, you know, as dramatic as some of the events in the in the book are, and and you know, people have found them to be, uh, what has happened in the six years since the book has come out, I think, are equally uh, dramatic, if not more dramatic, and also more relatable. You know, I touched on it a minute ago by by telling you, you know, what it was like to kind of step away from the law and and kind of embrace this the unknown you know, of, of trying to blaze this career as this, you know, wellness person podcast is like, you know, there, there was no roadmap and it, it really tested my faith. It tested my resolve. And I've learned a lot, you know, about how you kind of weather obstacles, um, that I think, uh, required as much of me, if not more than me, uh, than the ultra endurance events that, uh, that I participated in. And so I wanted to speak to that. So, um, the book is about a hundred pages longer than the original edition. It's about 30 to 40% new material. It includes a new forward and includes a brand new chapter called there are no finish lines, which is kind of an ode, a nod to that blog post that, uh, that you referenced at the outset. Um, and it kind of brings the reader up to speed about what has happened, you know, since the book originally came out and then kind of lays out, um, uh, a, not, not a program, but, but really, um, uh, roadmap, a roadmap. Yes. That's the word I was looking for a roadmap with the tools and the resources and the practices and the strategies that I employed. So it's a very, um, you know, kind of tactical, uh, takeaway oriented section of the book to say, look, look, if you have a goal, like here's how you set a goal and here's how, you know, here's how I set goals and here's how I've gone about achieving them. And here's how I deal with obstacles and setbacks. And, you know, here are my daily routines, like, you know, kind of that kind of a thing. Um, and then, you know, I went back and I, and, and I rewrote a lot of the narrative and a lot of the prose. Like, I don't know if you've ever gone back and read anything you wrote six years ago, but you know, it's, it's a like, painful experience. Yeah, it's like, it's not, you know, it's like, ugh, you yep. know, like, really? I said that. So I wanted to change all of that. I've, you know, I've become a better writer. And so there's line edits throughout the book. And, and, and beyond that, you know, I, I, I really objectively went through all the criticisms of the book. You know, when you put something out in the world, it's a vulnerable thing. And this is a, this is a very, you know, emotionally raw book. So when people are, you know, criticizing it in the comments on Amazon or wherever, like it's hard not to take it personally because it's like my life. But right. I, I tried to mine, you know, the consistencies in the negative feedback and, 
you know, address those throughout. So there were a lot of little things that kind of bugged people. And, and I thought, you know what, they're right. You know, that, that is, I didn't characterize that appropriately or what I was trying to communicate was being misunderstood. So let me figure out a way to say that more plainly. So I did a lot of that. And then I just, you know, I beefed up all the resources um, in the appendices. There's a recipe section and also um, the cleanse protocol that I spoke about earlier. Um, that was kind of the, you know, the catalyst, to everything that followed. There were a lot of people who wanted to know what exactly I did because I didn't really explain that. And I, and that wasn't in the first version. So I, there's a whole section on the specifics of that. So, you know, even if you read the book and you enjoyed it, there's, there's plenty to, you know, enjoy in this version. And, uh, yeah. So, and I also re-recorded the audio book from page one. So the audio book's brand new as well. Super cool. I'm going to. I'm going to check it out myself. I look forward to doing so. I'll put links to the book um, and where folks can pick it up here in the show notes. Um, but it's not your only book. You have um, a couple books now, I guess, with your wife, Julie. First one mm-hmm. being The Plant Power Way, um, which you came out with a not really an updated version, just a, a new spinoff of it called The Plant Power Way, Italia. And I mean, those books, I think they show, I mean, they have recipes and um, delicious dishes that anyone can make, but they show how plant-based meals, they can be nourishing, they can be fulfilling, uh, and they can provide enough fuel to keep you going if you do live a very active lifestyle, which you do. Um, I guess my question about about that book um, and some of the impetus behind it, like in your experience, especially amongst athletes, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about adopting a, a plant-based diet and how it can support an active lifestyle? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so many misconceptions. Uh, you know, I think you know, top of mind are um, it's going to be too expensive, it's going to be too time consuming, and of course, like you know, where am I going to get my protein? Those are probably the three, you know, the three big ones. Um, you know, as far as the protein question is concerned, it's never been an issue for me. I mean, we could talk for hours about that, and perhaps that's beyond the scope of of this conversation, but. I'm 51 now. I'm still able to go out and, you know, crush it and build lean muscle mass and recover quickly in between workouts. And and protein has never been a limiting factor. Uh, And then, you know, in terms of of expense and ease, like we created these cookbooks. They're really for the family. You know, they're not necessarily oriented around athletic performance. What we wanted to do is show, look, this doesn't have to be hard. Actually, all these recipes are super simple to make. And they're fulfilling. Like, you know, when I'm training super hard, like I'm hungry, you know? And so a lot of people say, well, I tried plant-based, but I was like starving all the time. Or, you know, I felt like, you know, I felt lightheaded or weak. And my reaction to that is generally like, you're probably not eating enough. You know, I eat tons of food um, and I wanted to be able to, you know, demonstrate uh, exactly what I was eating and to show that, you know, you, you don't have to compromise taste and, or volume or any of these things. It's not just about eating salad, you know, or like chewing on carrots. Like you can enjoy all the flavors and the textures that, that you enjoy and do it in a way that's, um, you know, that's plant powered and that is super healthy. So that's what the plant power way was all about. The Italian cookbook, which comes out next month is, is, uh, you know, just, it's, it's, it's an extension of the first book, but just focused on Italian fare uh, inspired by these retreats that my wife and I uh, do in Italy every year where we take groups of people through like a week-long transformative experience. So we're excited about that. Um, and, you know, for anybody who's listening to this, who's thinking, 
well, how do you do the plant-based thing and how can you be an athlete and all of that? Like, you know, these books and Finding Ultra have plenty to say about that. And, you know, all I can tell you is that, you know, I've done my best to be as objective and as dogmatic about all of this as possible. Um, and I promised myself that, you know, when I began this journey of, of being this, you know, not just a plant-based athlete, but somebody who's kind of in the public eye, that I would always be honest about how I was feeling. And that if I started to feel like, you know what, this isn't working for me, or I'm feeling lethargic or something's not right, that I would be transparent about that. And that if I had to go back to eating other things that I decided I was giving up, that that uh, I was going to give my, myself permission to do that. And my experience to date is that that hasn't happened yet. I still feel great. And uh, you know, as energetic as ever. And, and, uh, so, you know, the, the, there's the chapter continues. I think I'll have to add that to my reading list as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing I've always appreciated about you is your honesty. And you just touched on that a second ago. Um, you share a lot about your day-to-day life on social media, via Instagram, you post your training on Strava. Um, it's almost as if you're saying like, look, I'm, I'm just like a lot of you and I've got nothing to hide here. Why is it important for you to, to share so much, um, with your fans and your followers? Um, I think, well, first of all, I don't, I don't share everything, you know, my daughters are getting older. And so I, you know, it's not like I'm you know sharing like what my family is doing and the intimacy of our home on Instagram stories or anything. I mean, I will from time to time. So I'm, I'm selective in what I decide to share. Uh, but, but, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't, uh, you know, I think, you know, sort of if I could, if I could identify like one thing that's sort of, um, contributed to the growth of the podcast and the interest in the things that I'm doing is, is that I am, you know, I am honest. I'm not trying to like stand on a, you know, on high and say, you know, I'm great. And, you know, if you want to achieve this, do, do as I do, or, you know, do here, let me give you the, five secret tips to, you know, uh, you know, unlock your potential. I'm just a dude, you know, like I, I, I know what it's like to be broken. I know what it's like to be confused. I know what it's like to stumble and make mistakes. And, and I wanted to be honest and transparent about that. Um, and you know, with respect to kind of sharing my workouts on Strava and on Instagram, you know, part of that is to, like, if you look at my workouts, you're like, well, he ain't that great. He's not running that fast. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. You know, people are, people always say like, he's just genetically gifted. He's this freak of nature. And it's like, well, look at my workouts. I think you would, you know, you would probably beg to differ on that. I'm very much, you know, like a, a middle of the packer most days. Um, but I hadn't raced or done anything competitive since, Epic five, which was back in 2010. Um, and when I turned 50, I decided I wanted to, you know, use that, that kind of hallmark age to throw myself back into, you know, a competitive situation to see what I was capable of and decided to do this race called Otillo in Sweden last year. It's a swim run ultra the world championships, a swim run that has you swimming and running across 52 islands spread out across the Baltic Sea in the Stockholm archipelago. It was a, kind of like an adventure race. It's and a pretty gnarly race. It's gnarly. Yeah. yeah. It was probably the hardest one day thing that I've ever done. Uh, it was super hard, freezing cold water and sideways rain and crazy swells in the, in the, in the sea. I mean, it was bananas, but part of 
you know, part of like, you know, as somebody who's always thinking like, all right, how do I, like, what's the best way for me to make the most impact on people? You know, for many years, the podcast, the books, things like that. And I thought if I'm out training all the time, then, you know, that that, it just seems self-serving to me at that point. It felt like if I'm doing that, then I can't do these other things that people seem to be connecting with. But turning 50 kind of shifted my perspective on that. I thought if I'm going to do this race, like I want to use it as a vehicle to, you know, show other people that, that, you know, perhaps they're capable of more than they think that, that, that they are because I'm 50 now. And so I made a conscious decision. I'm going to share every workout that I do on Strava. I'm going to do Instagram stories. I'm going to tell you when I feel lousy. I'm going to tell you when, you know, I missed a workout or I don't feel good and all that kind of stuff. And so everybody could follow along and, and, and see exactly what I did on a day-to-day basis and then follow the journey of, of going to Sweden and doing this race. And, and what was really cool about that is that people got really engaged and they were like, you know, they were like super into like, how's it that, you know, <laughs> and that was really fun. That was really fun for me. So I enjoy, I enjoyed it tremendously. All right. A couple more things I want to touch on before we wrap up here. Um, you have a lot going on in your life as we've learned throughout the course of this conversation. You're, you're a dad, you're a husband, you're a speaker, podcaster, author, athlete, um, all these things. Does it, does it ever get overwhelming? It does. You know, it definitely does. Um, you know, when I was back writing Finding Ultra, the phone wasn't ringing. You know, it was like a lot easier to write a book because there weren't a lot of distractions. And, you know, now, like, I'm, I'm so grateful to have so much going on and I'm on the receding end of a lot of, you know, cool opportunities. And so I think what's what's been required of me, which I never anticipated or expected I would have to deal with, is you know, becoming more discerning about what to say yes to, what to say no to, and, 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 and being really focused on what's more, most important. Um, and, you know, even in just the context of getting a podcast or two up a week and trying to do, you know, some of the other things that I do, like it's, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot and trying to take care of myself, training and all of that. Like I definitely have moments where I need to like unplug and, kind of disappear for a while to reboot my system. Um, so that is a challenge that, you know, I, I imperfectly navigate these days, uh, trying to find the proper mix of family, you know, marriage, um, advocacy, writing, all of these things. Like how do you make it all work and, 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 and be happy and grounded and balanced and, and really live the ethos, the, the lifestyle that you're purporting to, you know, that you're, that you're advocating out into the world. Like, you know, it's, you, you're walking the, the talk. I, yeah. It's like the day that I stop, that I stop walking the talk. That's a, that's a day of reckoning, you know, so I can't let that happen. And if that means that, you know, somebody else who's, who's hitting it 24 seven is going to, you know, pass me up in this, you know, blogosphere or whatever, like, so be it, you know, like, you know, I have to make, I have to keep my eye on, on, on what's most important. Um, so that's, that's really the North star with that. All right. And tying this all up, what are three things that you do or try to do or remind yourself of on a daily basis? Um, gratitude is super important. It's not my default setting, you know, as a sort of recovering alcoholic, my default mode is, is aggravated and irritable and resentful. And I have to do a lot of work 
to um, get into a state of gratitude. It's a practice. Uh, I have to constantly remind myself and find ways to express that gratitude, much like flexing a muscle. Um, but when I can, when I can inhabit that, uh, my life is better. So gratitude, big focus. Um, back to service as well. Like every time, you know, I'm in the midst of doing anything, I have to remind myself to take a pause and breathe and, and try to figure out like, how am I being of service in this? Like, rather than what am I getting out of this or how am I going to get mine? Um, to shift that mentality into how I, how can I contribute? Um, has been instrumental, I think, and also not a default setting. Like that's a practice, you know, that I have to constantly remind myself of. But, but again, like gratitude, when I can inhabit that mindset, um, my life seems to, to be better and, and, and I'm better at what I do. So those would be two. The third thing is, uh, probably sleep. Um, sleep's super important to me. Um, I do my best to prioritize eight hours every night. Uh, and the difference in how I perform and feel and function is pretty dramatic. Like at, at 51, like sleep doesn't come easy when you're training super hard, sleep's fine. But like when you're kind of just training in a civilian kind of way, which is sort of what I'm doing right now, um, you know, I, I have bouts of insomnia. It's very difficult for me. And when I wake up and don't feel rested, uh, it's very difficult for me to function the way that I would like to. So I have to exercise extra efforts to, um, to adhere to like a nighttime routine and a, and a morning routine to ensure that I, that I get as much rest as possible. Awesome. I think that's a great place to put a pin in it. Um, mm -hmm. Where can my listeners connect with you online and follow your various adventures? Sure. So the home of everything I do is my website, richroll.com. Um, I'm at richroll on Twitter and Instagram. And the Richroll podcast uh, is uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And, you know, the books, Finding Ultra, The Plant Power Way, all of that are on Amazon or wherever you, you like to buy your books. Awesome. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to connecting with you again down the road. Yeah, thank you so much, Mario. Keep it up. Uh, like I said, I love what you do and I really appreciate you having me on today. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. And that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to support the show, it only takes a few seconds to do so. Head over to Apple Podcasts or whatever player you used to listen in today and leave a rating and a review. Simple as that. It helps other listeners find the show, which in turn grows the audience, which helps me to continue bringing on great guests for you to learn from and be inspired by on a near weekly basis. If you'd like to support my work directly, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash the morning shakeout. Many thanks to all of you who have already made a monthly donation. It helps me to continue producing not only this show, but also my weekly newsletter of the same name, which comes out every Tuesday morning. And for those of you who had no clue that I even had a weekly newsletter, get on it. You can subscribe at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you will receive a weekly email from me. It comes out on Tuesday mornings. I write about running and a whole slew of other interesting topics, and I really think you'll enjoy it. That's all I got. So until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and thank you for listening to my podcast.